ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of Hoop Dreams, the basketball podcast on the 8-Bit Collective, powered by our pals at Audio-Technica. We are back once again talking The Last Dance, episodes 3 and 4, and man, this shit is getting good. My name is Matthew Tilby, <laughs> and it's just the duo this time. Yeah. It's uh, my pal, the Hoop and Hombre, uh, John O'Peck, here to discuss episodes 3 and 4. John, how you doing? I'm doing good. Always happy to talk basketball, but especially 90s Bulls. So here we are. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, quick question. In your opinion, three and four better than one and two? Uh, it's tough. Like, I don't know. What do you think? Because I, I just find them all so fascinating. Then they end and then I just want to watch more. And they kind of blur into one as well. So it's it's oh, one and two blur yeah, into one I and mean, then three and four blur into one. Yeah, like I, 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 I thought... I thought it's tough. I thought four was probably the best one because it was truly focused on the the stuff that I wanted to know most about. Mm -hmm. Obviously, you know, hearing about the Bulls in the 97-98 season is always going to be, you know, the the reason why we're here. But hearing those inside stories about what we'll get onto, you know, the teams in, in both Cleveland and Detroit was something that I knew a little bit about but wasn't, I guess fully aware of um so that was always a a really sort of good way to get things going but um let's just jump straight into it i guess and uh, of course episode three focusing all about possibly one of uh, the nba's most i guess unique characters in the form of the hot rod dennis rodman um the worm nice little quote nice little quote to start off with um i could have been broke i could have been in jail i could have been dead um and it's it's a really sort of interesting point that he gets into because it ties into, I guess the the foundations of of Dennis Rodman because he sort of talks about how he was in the projects and how he was kicked out at age eighteen, um, and he he really made something of himself. So that was a really good start. I did find it funny that uh, we got a little montage and there was a nice little stash with. Um, former Australian basketballer Chris Anstey. So he's yeah, uh, I saw Anstey. I was like, getting, hey. getting some relevance uh, very, yeah. very slightly there. Um, we, we sort of get an idea of, of, of Dennis as a player um, and he's just a straight-up glass cleaner. Mm-hmm. Like, there's no other way to describe it. Like, I wanted to ask you, like, who in the NBA at the moment could you compare him to? Because most power forwards and centers... In today's game, they sort of handle a bit more offensive responsibility now. Whereas Rodman, you, you see those games where he would go for zero points and twenty plus rebounds. So, like, it's hard to sort of pin him down and mm. compare him to someone in today's game, isn't it? It really is, and there's no one that comes close, really. And you kind of get the spirit of it in some players, but they might not have the same type of game. So, like Patrick Beverly. And Tony Allen, like they're these guys that they're defense first, that they're not thinking about how many points they're going to score, especially Tony Allen. And the focus for them is really to shut someone down. And I think that comes back to Rodman. And then you had like players maybe five years ago, like Joakim Noah, who would be similar in that they're there to grab rebounds and to dive for loose balls and put their body on the line. But there's no one that's done it and wrapped it up in a package like Rodman, who's also pulling down... 17, 18 rebounds a game, which is really phenomenal. Like, there's no one in the last 10 years, I think, that's averaged more than 15 rebounds a game. Kevin Love had a really Mm. good run, 
and Drummond's had a really good run, but no one's been able to dominate the boards quite like Rodman. In a time that the pace of the game also meant that there were less shots going up, there wasn't uh, as many misses, there wasn't the three-point attempts. Uh, and to like from 91, I think, to 98, he averaged 16 boards a game, with some seasons being Jeez. up to 18, some seasons it was 17, and the lowest yeah. he ever averaged was 15, and that was in his final season. So, yeah, really a one-of-a-kind player. And the like I mentioned Pat Beverly and Joakim Noah, but maybe Draymond Green is the closest you get to representing that role on a championship team where he's not there to score a certain amount of points. He's there to facilitate what the other people do and make life easier for them by being able to guard mm. as many positions as, as possible. And Rodman really could go from kind of Magic Johnson to Kareem to to MJ and, and pretty much just guard anyone that was a threat back at the, in the day. Mm. Well, we sort of got a bit of an idea of the sort of player he was um, when we saw through his, his sort of foundation story, he was drafted um, by the Detroit Pistons. And mm. really for a lot of people, this is their first look at the late 80s, early 90s Detroit Pistons, of course, known as the Bad Boys. Um, and they were a vicious, vicious <laughs> NBA team. Like, mm-hmm. I don't think I had a, an, as much of an idea of how sort of tough and and rough this team was until you saw the footage of them just absolutely colliding yep. with people in the paint. Um, once again, <laughs> like, you wouldn't see this sort of stuff happen in the NBA today because by by that time, I think Adam Silver would have probably been like, this something's got to something's got to happen here. Like, he would have stepped onto the court at that point. <laughs> I think Adam yeah, Silver exactly. like he would have been doing the Jeff Van Gundy holding onto the the ankle of the player if it got anywhere <laughs> close to that. But exactly. I mean, Tilby, th- this is good for education for you because you might flash back to an earlier episode of the podcast where we did the you know who would who would you pick to take on Jordan Pippen and Rodman, and some of the players you picked were you know Trevor uh, Trevor Booker. Devin Booker and, and like the the likes of, of these kind of young superstars. And I think you can see now like they would just get <laughs> yeah. eaten up, literally swallowed and crapped out like yesterday's breakfast. Um Yeah, in hindsight <laughs> with, with the more sort of com you know, modern day uh NBA players, I, I might have uh, got to go made tough. a mistake there. But uh, I'll I'll put my hand up and say I, I uh, made a mistake there. But um <laughs> We, we sort of got an idea of how, you know, tough this Detroit team was. But mm. on the other side of that, they were successful. Like there's, there's you know, oh, you yeah. could bang around players as much as you want, but they were winning games and they went all the way to, you know, they were top of the East and, and really competing there. But at the same time, the, the Doug Collins-led Chicago Bulls are getting better and better and it leads to... Um, an interesting series between the Bulls and the Cleveland Cavaliers. Obviously, once again, my sort of modern day look on the NBA, sort of, you know, you think LeBron, obviously. But mm. even in the 80s, like this team uh, in Cleveland, Doherty, Price, Craig Elo, even a young Ron Harper, like this team was really good, wasn't it? Steve Kerr was on that team as well. I don't know if you, you know. Yeah, exactly. There, they were awesome. Yeah. It was... Um... It's funny because it's it's kind of the antithesis of the Bulls in a lot of ways. You got all these white guys, a lot of like shooters. They're all these, <laughs> um, 
I guess, less athletic, like the opposite of what Jordan was doing, where it was a, a team, you know, focus and moving the ball around and getting these these jumpers. Whereas at that time, Jordan was so much about driving to the hoop and getting fouled and and dunking mm. and these crazy layups. So for him to hit that game-winning shot uh, over Elo <laughs> and the way they, they talked about it on this documentary was fantastic. Like it, Jordan saying that it was a mistake for Elo to be guarding him yeah. is like the <laughs> ultimate like rubbing salt in the wood. To, like he's basically yeah. known by modern you know fans of the game as the guy that Jordan hit that shot over and you know it's a shame because he hit his own go ahead bucket just before that you know they showed the context there and uh Ron Harper's reaction to not being able to guard him to this day still being kind of <laughs> PO'd about it is is pretty funny yeah exactly i mean like you said like they they were you know holding their own elo hit that really tough shot with a couple seconds left like mm. they could have easily taken this one and the, the sort of complexion of um the nba at that time could have been completely different but of course they call it the shot mm. like apart from say jordan's final shot against utah this is the one shot that really sort of brought him to to prominence um and at that point like they they never looked back um, of course, it sort of set up this this new rivalry with the Pistons, and mm. it's when they sort of started creating the Jordan rules. Um, and there was a quote that was basically just like, "You stop him before he takes flight." I think John Sally uh, said that quote: you, "You stop him before he gets anywhere near the rim, or else you're absolutely <laughs> stuffed." Um, is and I want to ask you another question: This Detroit Pistons team. Do you think this might be the only blight in Jordan's sort of storied history? Like this is the team that got away from them. Obviously, they won the, in that that game in you know that final series at the end. Yeah. But those first two years where they ended up beating the Bulls, and you could tell Jordan was really sort of just devastated by it. Mm. Is this the one that you feel like you know he he if he could go back again and and do things differently, he'd 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 love to take that chance. I don't know. Like I mean. Of course, you'd, you'd always want to win every series that you're involved with, but I think the way that they beat him was for, like formative in the way that he approached the game throughout the 90s in his dominance because he was able to you know go to the gym and, and as they pointed out in the documentary, bring this kind of new focus to, to muscle and tone, body tone and mass that for some reason... It's the formation of muscle watch, yeah, Jono. it was the original muscle watch. He put on 15 pounds of muscle. I don't know why they put it that way. He said, we put on seven and a half and then we put on another seven and a half. It's like, just say 15 pounds of muscle, man. We all want to hear it. Um, it's, it's the league mandated 15 pounds, yeah. yeah. But yeah, that kind of approach to, you know, we have to toughen up and, and take this was what made him tough and what made him able to overcome them that year and get the the monkey off your back and a lot of players have to like the great players have to do this at one point in their career we saw LeBron the first time he got past the Celtics you know breaking down and having an emotional moment on the court with Miami and then you know for for other teams it's it's other like for the um uh, Thunder might have been getting past the Lakers and for uh, for the Lakers at different points it's been getting past the Spurs so I think it is it was really it, it was that moment for MJ 
and for the Bulls. So I think to be able to beat them in 91, like they were still mm. at their peak, essentially. Like Isaiah Thomas was 27, Dumas was 29 as like probably the best two players on the team. Rodman was still in his prime as an athlete. So it wasn't like they beat this aging kind of past their prime team. And I think that that's really the legacy is that it, it takes a couple of cracks to, to get past that. And once they were past them, they never looked back. Like it was never really a struggle for them to get over that team again. And, you know, part of that is because Isaiah went on to have a, a pretty bad Achilles injury a few years later. But um, yeah, I, I, I do think that it's just part of the the uh, the lore that is MJ's career now. Do you think this sort of segment in the in the episode painted Isaiah Thomas as a bit of a like mini bad guy? Because I got that <laughs> feeling watching this period, and especially the part at the end of the series where they walk off without shaking anyone's hand. Yeah. Like you just got that feeling, like. Definitely, yeah. Man, <laughs> you're, you're really rubbing me the wrong way here. I think that was partly by design because from a bull... As a Bulls fan's perspective, they are the bad guys. And from MJ's perspective, you saw how he reacted to um, <laughs> to, to the... that They're going to show the footage to him of what Isaiah was saying about the walk-off. And he was like, I don't care what you're going to show me. Like, that guy's an asshole. And <laughs> it's it's just one of the many things that the Pistons did to slight MJ, in his mind at least, because Isaiah was involved in this famous like freeze-out in the 85 All-Star game, which, whether it's real or not, that was definitely Jordan's perception. Then there was the physical beating and targeting that they made him endure in all those series. After all that, you're already going to have this animosity towards them. So yeah. the walk-off on top of all that, I think, was just something that clearly rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. Like the media latched onto that and made it a big thing. And you could see in Isaiah Thomas's comments, like there's, you know, he's kind of trying to defend it in the moment, but also showing some regret over it and... I think a large part of that is the consequence it had on him, which eventually was just essentially him being left off the dream team, which I'm sure we'll get to in uh, either the next episode or, or soon after that. He had this um, regret over it based on like how the media reacted and everything, but he was also trying to defend it um, as well, with like trying to say that it was just what people did at the time. But the, the last thing that I said was that it eventually, as they'll cover on future episodes, probably um, the the result was that he was left off the 92 Dream Team because of it. Yeah, we, we sort of, it sort of came out in, you know, the next couple of days after the, the episode came out, how that sort of um, influenced how he wasn't on the Dream Team. And he, he sort of talked about how that was his big regret, so to speak, but... Considering Jordan shook, you know, everyone's hands after being absolutely almost beaten to death mm. on the on the basketball <laughs> court, like it doesn't paint a good picture. Let's let's say that much. Yeah, that's the thing that kind of gets me is like, yeah, fair fair enough. If it's been this bitter rivalry and they just hate each other, and you know, you just want it to be over with when you've just lost. But the fact that 
Jordan and his teammates had made that effort in the years leading up to that, you know, that's something you should remember and I think you should respect because what would have been harder, MJ shaking their hands after they beat the crap out of him or for them to shake his hands after getting swept, I don't know. But I know a lot of like Detroit fans and even just fans in basketball would side with the Pistons there and say, you know, that's that's being competitive and that's blah, 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 blah. But I think, you know, I, I always hate shaking hands after a loss, but you still do it. <laughs> you still do yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, uh, we, of course, we got that, uh, that great quote from uh, one Horace Grant, uh, <laughs> quote, Straight up bitches. Yeah. Um, so swole, that dude. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he's, he, looking he's looking... He looks like he hasn't aged a day, but he's gotten a lot bigger. He's Let's bigger. say that much. Yeah. Um, then we, we get a little bit more about, uh, you know, guys like Dennis Rodman. We get back to him. He was in a bit of a bad spot um, after that series, and he was, of course... You know, he had obviously what we could have assumed was some uh, mental issues, and we won't get into that too much. Um, but he was traded to San Antonio, and he continued um, mm. on a, on a great vein, and obviously playing with. I think David Robertson was at at that point, wasn't he? Yeah. So they kind of glossed over it a little, but Chuck Daly, his coach at the Pistons, who was like a father to him, they had a new coach, and that coach didn't treat him with the same kind of fatherly approach that Chuck Daly had. So yeah, the dynasty of the Pistons being over, I guess Dennis was feeling in a, in a weird spot and he just didn't fit in, in San Antonio. Like David Robinson, as you mentioned, one of the greatest centers ever, uh, definitely one of the greatest centers of the nineties, but the personality of him being such a straight arrow, like Christian, very like by the book, you know, military mm. man he literally went to the to the navy to play basketball uh compared to rodman like that was a weird combination of of um i guess big personalities so it's no wonder that he didn't really excel there but that's where dennis rodman as we know him now was kind of born because that's when he started to dye the hair influenced by wesley snipes in demolition man that's where he started to like rack up the tattoos and um that's yeah a, a time where I guess he was more lost than we've seen him while he was in the NBA. Exactly, and and hopefully um, sooner rather than later we get to hear about his time in uh, in WCW because oh, yeah, it'll come. <laughs> I cannot wait to talk about his match between him and Carl Malone. Like mm-hmm. just thinking about it, just boggles the mind. And this was during the NBA Finals as well, so. I can't wait to discuss that. Yeah. <laughs> um, but of course, after that, he was traded to the Bulls, and it was they sort of talked about how j- guys like Jordan and Pippen would would take him in with open arms, and even though he was still this sort of loose cannon, you almost had um, guys like Phil Jackson putting an arm around him, being that father figure, mm-hmm. and I guess he just needed someone to to be there for him and sort of keep him in check. And um, but then, of course, we see him, you know being the the glass cleaner that we we know and love there was the great montage uh soundtrack by the beastie boys of course where where he's just cleaning up like it's it's prime rodman um and i i i genuinely don't think there is a a better defensive player 
um, at that point. Like even David Aldridge was sort of saying like he's the best was he the best on ball defender he'd ever seen. Yeah. Like and and that's that's high praise given, you know, you you'd have a lot of decent players um, in a in a time when defense was was huge it's not like today where you can just jack up 23 point (laughs) shots um there was a lot more sort of pressure on the ball so that's high praise indeed but we move a little bit uh back to i guess current day i keep saying current day it's 97 98 bulls um pippen is still injured um, Rodman seems to get a bit more out of it because he's the second in command and, and sort of forms that sort of bond with MJ. Um, just how much do you think it hurt when, when Pippen sort of came back from his injury finally um, and Rodman sort of felt like he was the third wheel in this relationship? I don't know if it hurt him, but I think it was... It put him in a, in a different position. Like, it was back to the the routine that they'd had for the previous two seasons. And initially, I don't really know what Rodman was thinking because he was talking in interviews about how he wasn't feeling motivated to play hard. And I don't know if it was because they were um, losing games or if it was because it was the third season and they'd just come off like, you know, something like 130 wins out of a, a potential 160 in two seasons. So... Um, yeah, I, I think that they had that great moment where MJ kind of chewed him out and then he came to the hotel room to ask for a cigar and that being his apology and his uh, acceptance of his new role on the team. So, yeah, I think as much as you said they op- uh, welcomed him with open arms, it was all on the court. There was not really any interactions between them off the court, which... I guess it's just the way that it has to be with personalities that are that big. And Rodman is known for his partying and everything. And he really took to the role players on that team. The guys like Longley, Bill Wennington, Judd Buchler, Steve Kerr, like they're the ones that went out with Dennis and had fun with Dennis because they didn't have the responsibility that MJ and Scotty did. Um, so I think for, for Rodman to feel needed by Jordan and and to have that acknowledged probably helped him kind of focus for that part of the season mm. and then Pippen coming back it was kind of like okay I can kind of take the foot off the pedal a little yeah and and that sort of hence I Vegas guess, influenced his <laughs> his uh, yeah his trip to uh, to Vegas which they sort of discuss um I should point out the the nice little uh, cameo for Craig saying paying Rodman's mm. fine yeah, we then move into episode four, and it's it's um, we get given a bit of a, a cliffhanger that uh, Rodman sort of left for Vegas on a, a sort of team mandated vacation, mm. um, and and MJ <laughs> obviously jokingly saying like if he goes on vacation you'll never see him again. Yeah, um, he was right. We though. then find out <laughs> we then find out that he's gone over time well over time Jordan has to come to Vegas and bust into his hotel room and find out that he's sleeping with Carmen Electra <laughs> one of the more bizarre cameos to come out of this both yeah. her and uh, Barack Obama <laughs> but um, we we then sort of get an idea of how Jackson tended to 
um, mentor Robin or sort of support Robin at this time. And, and that's mm. when we sort of get a bit of an idea of Phil Jackson, the man, um, working in a lot of Native American folklore and, and lots of Zen Buddhism. Uh, and then we get a bit of an idea of Phil Jackson, the basketballer. This is the yeah. part that I didn't know. All right. <laughs> because he, he looked like he came out of Creedence Clearwater Revival. Like oh, yeah. he was the biggest hippie looking <laughs> basketballer I think I've ever seen. And they talked about it in, in the show as well. Like a lot of people were in, you know, suits and all that sort of stuff. He was like denim jacket, sort of skinny jeans and bushy hair and glasses. Like he had some great looks. He was. It's. I mean, in today's NBA, he'd be pulling off what people would call a fit. Yeah. But, yeah, definitely not at that point in time. But I wanted to ask you, when he came to the Bulls and, and sort of um, worked alongside guys like um, like Doug Collins, that's when the formation of the triangle offense came in. And mm. how influential do you, do you think that the triangle offense has been for the success of the Chicago Bulls? It's it's hard to play like what if, but it's 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 really what led them to to win those championships. I think because it the principle behind it was taking the ball out of Jordan's hands and making it a team approach. Up until that point, as you saw with the Doug Collins kind of approach, it was get the ball to MJ and get the hell out of the way. And he pretty much said that in press conferences with a couple more expletives. And Jordan, obviously Jordan loved that because it meant he could go off and score 63 and, you know, 69 points and that kind of thing. But to bring in the triangle, and they, they touched on it, it was a, a new system. It was one that I don't know if it had been used in the NBA, but it definitely hadn't been used to the level of success that the Bulls were able to get out of it. And Tex mm. Winter, you know, it was great to see Tex get the shout out for kind of being the father of this system but he was there and he was able to with phil get them to buy into it as their primary approach to the game to open the floor up to all these potential ways to score and involve different people on the team and up until that point it was if you can stop jordan you can stop the bulls and you know that's never a great approach to offense even in today's game you know whether it's James Harden or Giannis at different points in teams these people have been involved with you only had to stop the one person and you could get a win against that team yeah so you know stopping Jordan it's not like it's an easy thing to do but if you can slow him down you have a better chance and by doing that it it kind of um, empowered guys like Scotty and John Paxson to be weapons on this team in ways that they hadn't Mm. before um, and yeah, I think the triangle is a huge part of that. And Phil, with those pointy shoulder blades, is uh, <laughs> and, and his his gift of of books before every season to every player based on what he thinks is going to motivate them. I think his whole approach, coupled with his managing of personalities and his uh, triangle offense, was yeah a huge part of that success. Yeah, it, I was I, about to say it myself, obviously, it sort of stifled Michael a bit, obviously, because you were saying the previous offense was just get the ball to Michael, but mm. it allowed people to come in and, and, and you, you could feel like Pippen felt like he was able to flourish and, and you, you, you'd see guys like John Paxson really catching fire in that game five, yeah. just raining down shots, which was really fun to see. It sort of almost was like the, the prototype for um, 
players in the NBA today, but we then get a bit of an idea of the the team that they're going up against for their first title, which is the LA Lakers. Like mm-hmm. this is like you could you could just you could just you can argue that Magic's sort of on on the decline a little bit, but even in '91, yeah. yeah. the team that they had then was a real real good team. Yeah, for sure. Like um, Vladi Divas had come over from Europe and had been a huge addition to that team, and you know they had. I'm trying to think of the other guys on there. Eldon Eldon Campbell was he a bit later? I can't remember. Anyway, I have watched that series and. It's not like a uh, a team that they're just going to magic every time. Like that wasn't the Lakers' approach. Um, James Worthy and everything like that. Even like years with Kareem, Magic was the facilitator. He's the point guard. He wasn't going to average thirty points a game. And in that series, it was much the same. But they were coming in there with all that experience, and they were the team that you know they hadn't won a championship since. Uh, think 87 so i think uh yes yeah, so they uh Sempert. the last title that they yeah. won was 88 oh that's right yeah yeah they hadn't won a championship since 88 like before the pistons kind of had their little era so they'd been out of it and this was i guess magic's last chance to to go and into the finals before the whole hiv uh thing changed his his life for a long time but i think yeah, just the fact that it was almost like a passing of the torch in some ways. Magic was mm. coming into, like, it was his 11th season and at, back at that point in the NBA, you know, 12 years is kind of like a, lo- a really long career. So, yeah, I mean, getting past the Pistons in a lot of ways was the real challenge. And then it seemed like just from that first game, even though they lost, MJ was like, yeah, we knew that we could beat them after that because we had a lot left in the tank. Yeah, like, that's what I was going to talk about. Like, they sort of discussed how, I mean, the Lakers won that first game, and it wasn't by a lot. I think it was by two points. Mm, And Jordan was sort of saying, like, we weren't even playing that well, and we almost beat them. So we knew we could absolutely wipe the floor with them. And you look at the box scores for the next, you know, four games, which the, the Bulls won. They won pretty easily. So it was the turning point for the Bulls being, you know, the alpha male in the NBA mm-hmm. and really the sort of the catalyst for, I guess, the the transition for the Lakers. But, and obviously this would set off the next, you know, eight years or so for the Chicago Bulls. But we sort of move back into um, the 97-98 season where they're on the road and uh, going to Utah and they get that... that out of nowhere statement from everyone's favorite GM, Jerry Krause, um, you know, Michael's welcome back here, you know, if he wants to, but, you know, he won't be playing for, for Phil Jackson. Yeah. Like, why, why would you kick a team when they're down like that? Like, they've just hit, you know, a, a good run of form just before the All-Star break, and then that happens. Like, is he trying to light a fire under them? Is he trying to upset them? What, what do you think is happening? I don't know. I think he just got asked a question and he answered it without thinking, probably. <laughs> it was funny to see like the way that they edited together the montage of Jordan getting asked the same question in every city about, are you going to come back next year? And him yeah. having to say in a million different ways, I don't know, haven't decided, undetermined. Like 
and yeah, that really would have pissed off a lot of players, I think. Especially, like, you look at the, the way that they're trying to manage the media and Dennis talking about, I'd play this game for free. The, you know, the, the money I get is because I have to deal with all this crap off the court and the speculation and, and scrutiny that that team would be under, it would be... I know it's a, it's a completely different, you know, world now with social media and everything, but if you remember the heat when the big three happened and the amount of hype and, and scrutiny that those guys were under. It was so much that Wade and LeBron did all their press conferences together so that they could be on the same page with everything. So I think it's the only thing that I can see to compare to that kind of hysteria around one team. And to go into an all-star break, which is meant to be like a relaxing time for everyone, yeah. that's, everyone that's not involved in all-star weekend, but have all that extra you know, layer of, um, I guess, scrutiny and stress over their heads is probably not ideal, especially once, you know, at that point, they've just kind of started turning things around. Scotty's just come back to play and, yeah, Jerry Krause. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we we do get a, uh, a bit of a teaser for, I guess, the final boss of uh, <laughs> this entire series being the Utah Jazz. And, of course, we all know what's going to happen at the end of that. But at this point in time, they're running on all cylinders and um, led by, of course, Malone and Stockton. Mm. Like, they're just firing. Um, this team in, you know, the mid mid to late 90s was a different beast, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And Stockton and Malone are like the archetype of the pick and roll offense and two of the best players ever at their positions. So, I mean, I, I've, I got into an argument with someone last week, as I do some random Twitter follower of that I don't know talking about MJ versus LeBron and people try and downplay some of the opponents that MJ had in his finals appearances and it's like okay the Malone and Stockton were older they were still like winning 60 odd games a season like mm. it wasn't like they were kind yeah. of the default ch- uh, champions of the Western Conference they went through the Spurs with Duncan and, and Robinson. They went through the Lakers with Shaq and Kobe. They went through, you know, these teams that, you know, the Rockets, like who, with Barkley and Hakeem and Drexler, like it's not like they didn't, they, they weren't a fantastic team. Like Malone was an MVP in 97. It should have been Jordan, I think, or maybe it was 98. I can't remember. But like he was one of the best players in the league and the, the still the you know, lead, uh, second leader of points for a career. So, and, and Stockton's assists numbers will probably never be beat. So I think those two guys clicking on all cylinders with a, a pretty decent um, assortment of role players with Jeff Hornacek and, and um, some of the other guys there, it's it's clear that they're a, a great rival to the Bulls because they're so different. Like Malone and Stockton, there's no flash at all. They're just bread and butter fundamentals as far as um the game goes and their personalities like you won't get malone giving you any any like cool dunks his cool dunk was putting his hand on the back of his head and and stockton was he had some uh some interesting like techniques in the game but he was a dirty player and he was just a fundamental point guard that you hated to play against so i think Compared to, I guess, the Bulls, it was um, it was a great rival for them. 
Mm. And I love that that quote that sort of came out in the last couple of days as well. I think one of his former players hated playing with John Stockton because he just didn't speak on the court as well. <laughs> I think he called him a zombie, yeah. which it would be kind of weird if he's not communicating on the court. But, um, I mean, when you're that good, I guess you don't really need to. You've got a <laughs> bit of a, a telepathic connection with your, your teammates. But yeah. um, I was I was going to call him the, uh, the, the prototype Nash and Stoudemire, given how good they were with the... Uh, the pick and roll, mm. but um, of course you'd see Nash being a little bit more flashy in that sense, and um, Stockton being, like you said, a little bit more fundamental with his play. But yeah, like this, this. I mean, we all know how it's going to end, but this series that it's it's leading up to is mm. going to be one of those defining moments that everyone's going to want to watch. But um, of course, to get past that, you've still got to get through um, the Sonics and, of course, the Phoenix Suns. Um, which I would assume we'll, we'll probably see in episodes five and six. But um, mm. yeah, that's it's a short little episode for us today. Um, of course, we'll be back next week, um, hopefully with some friends with us uh, yeah. to chat, uh, both Logan and Brendan um, away doing some things, some life admin, but um, we'll, we can't wait to have them back and, and catching up with us and, and yeah. discussing this incredible series. But yeah, um, if you've got any questions, queries, comments, or complaints, you can always send them to us with the hashtag HoopDreams. You can follow me on Twitter at It's Tilby. And Jono, where can they follow you? You can catch me on all socials at Jono himself. Awesome stuff. And, of course, um, keep watching this documentary. Like, I cannot stress this enough. This is my... <laughs> every Monday, this is my allocated Netflix time. I don't watch Netflix that much, but this is it for me. I'll sit down, maybe with a beer or something, and, and just lose myself in the next two hours because it's fantastic but um yeah, yeah until the next time uh, from me matt tilby and from john opec uh stay inside stay safe and keep watching talk soon keep dreaming.